Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is fiction writer Danielle Evans, a 2011 National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 honoree. Her collection of short stories, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, won the 2011 Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, Evans currently teaches creative writing at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Evans gave a, gave a reading at the University of Oregon on April 12, 2018, as a guest of the English Department and with the support of the Oregon Humanities Center Coleman Gateau Professorship. Thank you, Danielle, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us a bit about your background and how your trajectory to becoming a writer, how'd you get there? I gradually realized I had no other talents. <laughs> um, you know, I'd always told stories, and I think I, I think I did always want to be a writer. I just didn't know that that was an actual job. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I started the same way um, many students do these days in taking um, writing workshops and kind of figuring out the story form and realizing it was the thing that I liked the best. And I was lucky enough to be able to go straight from there to graduate school and to just sort of have things that can take a long time and not for reasons having anything to do with the writer's talent or career, but just because of the nature of, of the work that we do and sort of women's and subjectivity often the path that I was able to take could have taken many more years, but I was I was lucky that I was able to go from graduate school to a fellowship to teaching and kind of work on this book in the meantime and and have it come out. So I think for me, part of becoming a writer was just acknowledging that that was actually what I meant to be doing. Um, I had a strange backup plan that would be the stable thing I could do with my life was get a PhD in the humanities um, <laughs> and um, realized quickly that I sort of wasn't cut out for that kind of research. But, so the book's title and the first epigraph are quoted from the bridge poem by Donna Kate Russian. Why did you use those? What, what about those words were important for you? You know, that poem came back to me a lot um, as I was working. It's something I'd read in college. And, and the, the beginning of the poem, if you don't know it, I think it's available online, is um, it talks about all the sort of layers of translation. I used to be able to do it from memory, and I don't know if I can anymore. But, um, but all the sorts of ways that the speaker has to translate people for other people. So explain my sister to my mother, my father to my little brother, my little brother to the white feminist, white feminist to the church folks. It, it goes on, and so there's a sort of long list of translations that um, this person has to engage in. And it seems to me that, that all writing is really an act of translation, that we're trying to ask someone to inhabit someone else's experience for long enough to understand some portion of it. And that also if you're writing about characters who are from any kind of marginalized background, there are even more layers of translation and kind of more things to be cautious about in the way that you want to depict people in their full range of humanity um, and complexity, which means often sort of terrible things they do or their, their faults, but also the way in which those faults tend to be amplified in a culture that sometimes looks for people to be unintelligent or looks for people to be a problem. And so how do you write about people with problems without amplifying all those sorts of stereotypes of the ways in which people are problematic? And so I kept coming back to that poem in terms of thinking about that as something about the labor that I was doing. And it seemed often a, a story collection is titled after a single story. And it felt like that, the line from the poem that I chose um, spoke more to the work of the collection than the title of an individual story did. Um, in part because it was it was bringing me back to that sort of question of translation, but also um, as the title, it, it seems to sort of be both a question and a kind of command. Um, and I like the idea that it's a little bit ambiguous who it's talking to. Mm -hmm. And then there's a second epigraph from Audre Lorde. What about that one? You know, I I love Audre Lorde, and that uh, that epigraph is I believe I do not believe all of our, our wants have made all of our lives holy, which seems to me 
to be a lot about the other project of fiction, right? Where I think there are so many brilliant, beautiful ways to tell stories. I think what seems to me to be still the province of fiction, the thing that we have the most control and command over, is the difference between the interior self and the exterior self. Um, that space that sort of what you're doing in the world and how you're thinking and feeling about it can be happening in the page at the on the page at the same time, kind of mm -hmm. in a way that it's trickier in other mediums to convey. And so I really do think about interiority and desire as being the kind of engine for most fiction, as being the kind of space of narrative tension, even unrealized narrative tension is so much about that, um, that gulf between the performance of the self and, and the desires of the self. And so that, that seemed to sort of get at that, that idea about the lies that we tell and the things that we want that cause us to tell them and the ways in which that relationship isn't even always as obvious as we think that it might be. You've just spoken about fiction in general. This is a, a volume of short fiction. Are there things about the genre of the short story? I know your short stories tend to be longer short stories. Is there something about that genre that is particularly appealing for you? Yeah, I think there are, there are at least two, two reasons. Partly when I was working on this book because it was my first book. Um, this is an answer that I've kind of stolen from somebody else secondhand, so I don't even know who I stole it from. But I had a, I had a friend uh, who teaches creative writing say that she had a friend to come to write class and someone asked why, why short stories. And this was a writer of color who said um, she was Sri Lankan and she said, well, if I had written just one book with one voice, I was just worried about all the ways in which it would be reduced. That mm. they would say, like, oh, this writer now speaks for young Sri Lankan women. And so mm -hmm. um, that seemed to me to be part of, I think, what I was what I was nervous about it, 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 as a younger writer in a way that, I, that I'm less nervous about now, I sort of you know, care less what people say about my work, but at the time, and I just think outside of what people say about it, the project itself of kind of trying to give complex interior lives to characters who often don't get hurt, I wanted to be clear that it wasn't just one character. Mm -hmm. And so being able to play with voice, being able to play with the circumstances of the narrators, I think gave me a lot of freedom and took the pressure off trying to tell one narrative that would somehow encompass all kinds of different stories about being a young black woman. Um, I also think that the story form itself is just really interesting to me. Um, in that it, it tends to come down to a moment when something shifts or changes. There, there tend to be kind of pressure points in most short stories, and some of them more obvious than others, but they're about those moments that we don't always recognize that something has changed forever until we, we realize that it did. And so thinking about that and thinking about whether or not a character understands that that moment has happened or whether it's only obvious to the reader mm -hmm. is a really interesting project for me. Like, what are the sort of more dramatic moments when we know we're making a choice that's going to have consequences? And one of the things that we sort of do by accident that change the course of our lives, um, and I think the story form is a really good space for exploring that because it sort of comes down to the ripples from kind of one, one moment or one choice. Mm -hmm. I love the image of the ripples. Would you read a bit? Uh, for us I from one of the stories? Um, this is from about the middle of the short story, Wherever You Go, There You Are. I think all you really need to know is that Chrissy is the narrator's little cousin. Um, she's taking on a road trip of questionable wisdom. <laughs> Chrissy sleeps most of the way to Raleigh. I could use her to keep an eye on the map because I've only been down here a handful of times and I hate this stretch of highway. There's something about the compressed space of cars that makes people want to say things out loud, maybe just to see what echoes back, and every memory I have of this part of 95 is a memory of argument. The first time I went to Raleigh, I was about Chrissy's age and my mom was driving. On the way back, we were trying to get out of the state a few hours ahead of the tropical storm that was on its way, but already it was thundering and lightning, and the rain was steadily splattering onto our windshield, distorting everything on the other side faster than the windshield wipers could clear it. 
The argument we've been having was stupid. It was Father's Day and she wanted me to call her boyfriend, this jackass dentist she'd been seeing for a while, and wish him a happy Father's Day. The dentist was always blowing my mother off at the last minute. He yelled when they fought and sulked when he didn't get his way. He'd stretched his fairly substantial income to its natural limits and was always borrowing money from my mom that we never got back. You could smell the bullshit coming off of him unless you were my mother, and then you thought he was the answer to our prayers. I said the dentist had his own kids and I already had a father to call, and my mother said my father was out of the country and the dentist kids weren't going to call him, and I said that's because even they know he's an asshole. My mother got all huffy and cried and said she was just trying to have a family, and I said she already had a family, at least until I was 18 and could get away from her crazy ass, and she pulled over and slapped me and said, I'm getting out now, and until the car door opened and the sting of the rain hit me, I didn't know out of what. Through the stream of rain on the windshield, I watched my mother get smaller and smaller because of distance and water. It was like watching a person deflate. I understood that if she wasn't coming back, I wasn't going anywhere. Not because I was still a few months away from my learner's permit, but because I lacked the instinct to run. I understood for the first time how much I loved my mother. I understood that if I could help it, I would never love anybody that much again. When she got back in the car ten minutes later, soaking wet and both of us still crying, we didn't say a word about it, not then, not all the way back to D.C. I want to wake Chrissy and tell her about this as if it's a warning. Don't push too hard. Your last chance to see a person the way you wanted them to be may come at any moment. One minute, you have a parent or a friend or a lover, something solid, and physics tells you their resistance will always be there to meet you as you press yourself into relief against them. Then, all of a sudden, your mother is a fading outline in a thunderstorm, wet and weak and so far out of reach, or your lover, who may also be your best and only friend, is pulled so quickly into someone else's life that you don't even realize he's left yours until you're getting a save-the-date card, or your father is somewhere at the other end of the world, and even if you had a number for him, you'd feel wrong calling to tell him to quit collecting stuff when it's painfully clear that you have nothing to offer to replace it. But I don't wake Chrissy because she's sleeping like a baby, and anyway, she isn't a baby, and she doesn't need me to tell her what it is to watch someone let you down by being human in the saddest and neediest ways, what it is to push at something that has long since given way. It hits me like my mother's slap that just watching me these days is teaching her this lesson. Thanks so much. Um, th that passage gives a good sense of many of the characteristics of your writing. The one that I'm uh, wanting to stress at this point is um, the kind of complexity of human interaction and experience. You're, it's as if you you're, um, r refuse to reduce characters to simple uh, um, responses. So no character is a flat character, right? I think uh, E.M. Forster talks about flat characters and, and round characters. None of your characters are flat. They're all richly complex. Say why that's so important for you. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is one of the things the story form can let you do, and that a very short moment you can sort of introduce somebody and their sort of ability to surprise the character or the reader. You know, there there is, I think, in the novel, a need for some some people will show up and have less room than that. But mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot because I write a lot in first person is the other fact of first person is that you have to be able to see around the narration. And the seeing around the narration comes in the form of secondary characters. And so they have to be able to surprise the narrator sometimes. And that's, I think, what I like about having secondary characters be, be complicated in short fiction, mm -hmm. because it helps you put pressure back on the all first person narrators are a little unreliable. And so when they don't quite know, um, when they expect people in their lives or the people that they're interacting with to do one thing and they do something else, that's often an interesting moment for the reader, but it's also an interesting moment for the character and the narrator has to kind of recalibrate. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like in this story, she has these sort of 
ideas about what is going on with her little cousin, but they're not always the right ideas. She has these ideas about what's going on with her ex, but they're not always the right ideas. And there are moments when she is very aware and insightful, and there are moments when that sort of causes her to overestimate what she thinks is going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of my characters are like that, that they are, they are smart and attuned to other people, but other people have the capacity to to be more complicated than we give them credit for, even when we know them very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think that the mo those moments of surprise are often the moments that cause us to have to make decisions. I mean, that's the other kind of engine of fiction is making small and large choices. And so when things happen that we're prepared for, we don't have to think about how we're going to react because that's what we've been planning for. But when things happen that are unexpected, that's when the character has to sort of decide how to react. And so those are often also the things that those sort of complex secondary characters give me room to make mm -hmm. a primary character more complicated mm -hmm. because then there's that moment for the, the difference between who you think you are and who you actually are when you have to sort of make a spot decision um, about what to do. So you've spoken about voice and you've just spoken about um, first person, not always reliable narrators. Most of the narrators in this volume are first person narrators. There's a couple of third person limited types of narrators. Um, I think one of the things that's striking about the work is how distinctive these voices of these individual narrators are. Why, why is that something that, why do you think that's characteristic? I mean, I think there's some writers who, all the characters, I mean, William Faulkner, for example, all the characters always sound like William Faulkner, right? Why is that important? And I mean, I, I don't want to ask you, how do you do it? But say something about how you think about that. Yeah, I think that's probably half choice and half luck. I mean, mm -hmm. as writers, we all get certain things in our toolkit and we don't get others. Like, I moved around a lot. I have a lot of different kinds of people in my life and family from different contexts. And so what I don't have is that sort of like the way that you know a, a city like the back of your hand and you know like what was on that corner every year for the last like 40 years. I will never have that about any place, but I, I do have lots of voices in my head. <laughs> um, and so, so partly it's kind of using using what you have. But, but I think in terms of the deliberateness of that, it's um, first person to me is always a story partly about how we tell the story. Mm -hmm. How we're able to talk about things or not talk about things is part of how we survive them or didn't. Um, and that sort of secondary layer of the story is really important to me. And I think one of the people I admire most in the short story form is Alice Monroe. And I think it's because you can always see the story that's under the story, right? It's, it's, it's the thing that happened, but also all of the ways in which it sort of matter. There's often actually kind of two different layers of, of things happening in the story and then, and then a layer underneath that that's sort of all about how the character understood it or didn't um, and how that understanding has or hasn't changed them. Um, and so that's kind of the psychological space I like to work in in the first person. Um, when you get to the end of the story, it's does the way that this character told the story tell you anything about how they understand these events? Like at what point they realized that that moment that had changed things had come and what it meant to them when it did. Um, and so I think that some of the things that are questions of voice are questions of just how people sound and kind of dialect, but some of them are questions of like who uses humor like in a deflective way, who uses humor in a kind of menacing way or um, a kind of aggressive way, who who's not telling the story as though it's funny at all. You know, like where did the sort of deflections come in? Where where is the narrative most direct? What are people able to say plainly, and what do you have to kind of read around? And that is part of voice, but it's also part of the psychology of the story, which for me is so important in first person. Mm -hmm. And most of the, most of these first person narrators are uh, women of color. There's a couple of stories that have male protagonists and one story where the narrator is a man. 
Was that a particular challenge? How do you understand inhabiting the voice of um, a, a subject position that's quite different from your own? Yeah, I mean, that has never been particularly challenging. I mean, I listen to men all the time. I probably yeah, listen right. to men yes. more than I listen to women, yeah. as, is, as is the nature yeah. of our culture. So um, I think that, that hearing how men talk was not so much a challenge for me. I mean, it was a challenge in the story um, where there's a sort of limited third was that it wasn't just a male narrator, but he was coming, he'd, he'd been a soldier and was a returning veteran. And that was a harder, you know, I wanted to sort of be fair to his kind of psychological distress without letting that sort of stand in for all of the other things that made him interesting and compelling to me as a character. Mm -hmm. And so that was the challenge more than, more than him being male. And I think the thing that I think about with characterization more than gender is, is age, that mm -hmm. is partly just in relation to space. Um, mm -hmm. That, like I'm writing a, narrative, a novel now where there are characters, it's all, it all, it's all set in DC, and there are characters who've been there for 40 years. And so just even thinking about like the way that you describe the city when you've been there a long time versus the way that you describe it when it's sort of new. Um, those kinds of nuances of voice are sometimes things that I push a little harder because it's about remembering like what year the train car stopped running down 14th Street, mm -hmm. which like I don't personally remember, so I have to call somebody. You know, um, those kinds of things I think are, are, for me, more important than sort of demographic details. Is like what has this person been through that I haven't been through that I'm trying to access, mm -hmm. or what does this person remember that I don't remember mm -hmm. that is th lingering with them. So I think that for me was the tricky part about that voice, and it's what, one of the reasons why it's limited third. It's partly because he is not as able to speak about the things that have happened to him as some of the other narrators. And so imagining that story, even though it's not the first person who's always imagining a literal kind of telling, mm -hmm. you do have to sort of be able to imagine the character saying these things out loud. Mm -hmm. And he was not a character I could imagine saying some of what he needed to say out loud because that was part of what he was dealing with, was mm -hmm. sort of trying to pretend that he hadn't just been through this traumatic thing, which was not just about the war, but also about the sort of character before that, right? Yeah. The, the sort of way in which he held on to his particular traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so that was the challenge, I think, for me in that story. So you just you mentioned that uh, uh, an issue that you do think about is age. Many of the stories are about younger people. There's children in the stories. There's teenagers. There's college students. There's graduate students. There's people who have recently come from college. Why why are you why in this volume are you particularly interested in younger people? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's something about the coming of age story that maps really well onto our traditional understanding of the short story. Um, and that often you have that clear kind of before and after line there, are, or, or you expect it and it's not there, but there's there's often in, in coming of age moments that we expect to be kind of definitional and we're told like, you'll make this choice and it will affect the rest of your life in some way. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it isn't in surprising ways, mm -hmm. but it, it lends a sort of narrative structure to here's a moment when a decision has to be made and it's gonna change something and I find that actually, as I've been writing away from that a little, as I've been writing about older narrators in, in the, sort of the novel and the collection that I'm working on now, that it's actually also changed my relationship to form. Mm -hmm. That I think that sort of moment of building to a point when a decision has to be made and then kind of thinking about the implications after that um, doesn't always map onto the parts of our lives when it feels like we're not making choices. Like our choices are just choices that we're making day to day in the face of increasing helplessness. Like mm -hmm. that, that requires some different kinds of ways of thinking about structure, which doesn't mean there aren't still kind of those phenomenal shifts and those great moments of great meaning, mm -hmm. but they don't always come where we expect them to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I think one of the things about writing a short story collection that was, that was about coming of age stories was that let me think about the sort of, um, the platonic ideal of the form, if you will, the sort of moment mm -hmm. of like, here's something that we're building toward, here's a decision that's gonna tell us something about who this person is, here's the way in which that is or isn't surprising or complicating. So uh, another uh, characteristic, obviously, uh, of your stories is the way that you conclude them, your endings. 
um, there are no um, simple morals to your stories. The endings are, are all open-ended. Say something about that. Yeah, um, I mean, we talked about the workshop cliche is that the ending of a story should open up the story and not shut it down. And we talk um, in, in our program about, I call it the, the big question and the little question. My colleague calls it the thing and the other thing, right? But the sort of, the thing that you've promised the reader to resolve is the narrative question, right? And then there's something you want to keep the reader up at night mm -hmm. um, that you've made them read all these stories for. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the idea of the ending of the story is to sort of let you sit with that kind of larger question, let you sit with the unresolved thing. Um, and, and often that's a sort of thematic or moral question, um, but that's the kind of work that you're asking the reader to do. I think it's important to remember as a writer that you're only having, like at best, 60% of the conversation. You have to leave space for the reader to come into the story, and sometimes it's really hard to leave that space because you want, you became a writer because you're a control freak, right? And so <laughs> the idea that like other people would be allowed to have ideas in the world that you created, um, it, it takes some letting go, but I think it is the idea. It, it is the way that we're sort of saying that fiction means something is that we're asking people to kind of come into the world and take away their own thoughts. Um, so I try to leave the stories in a space where there's still some sort of larger thematic question um, in terms of, you know, how will this shape the rest of this person's life? I want people to be able to imagine like how this will matter five or 10 years out, but I also want there to be some room in that imagining and I want there to be some some questions of kind of, if, if this character hasn't done things we consider to be good things, what might we have done differently? And if, mm -hmm. you know, if they did the best they could, then what does that mean about the way that we think about people's options? Mm -hmm. you, um, you mentioned earlier in the interview uh, your interest in um, characters of color, uh, minority voices. Um, racism is a recurrent concern throughout the volume. Many of the narrators are um, women of color, black women. Often they have relationships with white people or they're in interracial relationships or they're interracial families. Can you say something about your understanding of why race is central in your work and what, yeah. what, it, what, it, what are the sort of things you want people to think about or take from your uh, meditations on race? Well, I think, I mean, there, there are moments where it's a writing concern or there are moments where it's a thematic concern and those operate somewhat differently for me. But, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the way that we come back to nothing comes from nowhere, that idea that we're always describing the world from a particular vantage point. You know, if you're moving through the world in a particular body, it's going to shape everything. Um, like the geography of cities, if you ask people to write a paragraph about, you will get answers based on where people feel safe, where people feel unsafe, where people feel noticed is different, where people can like get a, get a cab, where people are made to feel welcome, right? That there's, um, if we ask people where the safest place in the city is, like you'd get different answers depending on who that person is in their lived experience of the world. And so partly it's just a matter of realizing that like even if the story is not about race and that it's the explicit kind of conflict or plot of the story, it's affecting all the other details that come in. It's affecting what people notice and what they choose to tell you. Um, and so being aware of that in terms of thinking about my narrators and how they talk about the world, even the sort of physical space of it is important. And then th there are moments where, where it is a more thematic issue. And I think then it becomes one of those questions of like, how do we translate or talk across these kinds of things, like in some ways, I think of the generation of that that a lot of these narrators come from as being as having experienced almost like a migration experience without moving. That the world that they grew up in is in some ways very different than the world that pre-civil rights movement black parents grew up in in terms of what was possible. Mm -hmm. It also has many of the same kind of perils and things that haven't changed. And so the ways in which you can and cannot be prepared for the country that you live in, even when it's the only country that you have, um, when when the tensions come more explicitly to the surface, um, that's that's part of what I'm interested in, and sort of um, 
what can't we prepare the people we love for or what can't we understand the people we love telling us um, because the world that they live in is in some ways fundamentally different than ours, whether it's because we're inhabiting the same present in different ways or because we have this sort of other history that is useful in ways to pass on and also like doesn't prepare people for a world in which there's at least the pretense of equality. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, and also the ways in which there's of course obvious structural inequality, which when you're rating stories are always about choices. Some people just have fewer choices than others. And so remembering that, that you don't want to take away agency from characters, that you don't want to write characters who are sort of so flattened by their circumstances that they can't exist as characters. But that also that's just sort of describing the structural reality of the world, which feels like a political task because we're asked so often to ignore it. Mm -hmm. But it's actually just description, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that there are ways in which some people don't have as many good options as other people. But you're, you're I mean, that's one of the interests of your stories is you have an acute interest in ranges of agency and the kind of variety of agencies that these characters have given their particular situations and, pos and positions. Um, you, you've, we've been speaking, you, you speak very eloquently about your own writing. Um, you are a teacher of writing and I imagine you're an amazing teacher of writing. Can you say something about how you approach that challenge, that project? Yeah, I mean I think, in, I, I'm lucky enough to teach both kind of classes that are more reading based and, and workshops and so a lot of it is just sort of reading and reading in a way that we pay attention to the things that as readers we often don't want to. Like every, it's easy to love a beautiful sentence. It's, it's easy to love a character. It's harder to love the walls that are holding the whole book up. So partly it's about kind of learning to see those. I don't, you know, I try not to teach in the way that we're sort of gonna like make the story confess its secrets or like imagine that there is some like, I'm not sure that I believe in like craft as such that there's some like lesson we can learn by reading a writer who's really good at dialogue that we can sort of lift out and place in our stories because mm -hmm. so much of the work for me is um, feeling your way around in the wilderness until you figure out your own kind of voice or thing that you're trying to do and can see the shape of what you're trying to make. And I think, you know, those reading other people is sort of good for light in that darkness. It's not always good for like, and now I can like somehow by osmosis absorb this skill and put it into practice. So I try to get people to, to read in ways that we remember why we loved reading mm -hmm. and, and also to sort of see the ways in which that that joy is not like just spontaneous magic, that it actually like there were decisions the writer made and to try to identify where there are choices the writer made in terms of how to set things up um, so that people can sort of carry that knowledge of, of how many decisions a writer has to make about a work that seems just to appear brilliantly conceived in the world um, into their own work. But in the space of workshop, I mean, what I, a student told me once that I said, which sounds like something I could have said, like, <laughs> you should try really hard to love everything, but a lot of things are not lovable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, so, and I think that that maybe is the space that I, that I occupy, that I want us to come to the workshop where the joy is in liking something and not in being smart enough to find out what's wrong with it. But I also think that the project of a workshop is to help push people to be better, and, and not just better, but more ambitious. Um, and so often it's a question of looking at the story and seeing the possibility. I think revising is often an act of kind of tearing things down to the floorboards and starting over with a better vision of what you were trying to do. And so a lot of my workshop is aimed at asking, like, what are those operating questions in the story? What, what is the sort of immediate thing we promised the reader we're going to resolve, and have we set that up in an interesting way? And then what is, what is the thing that you're sort of exploring as a writer? Where are the obsessions or thematic questions coming in? Um, and how can we sort of leave room for the reader in them? So I have, we have 30 seconds left. One very fast question. Can you recommend something that you've read recently that you think we, we should read? I just on the plane read Madeline Miller's Circe, um, which was a really interesting, uh, I was just reading the new translation of the Odyssey too, so it was, it was a nice kind of companion book to that. Um, so yes, I would recommend that. <laughs> Thank you for that recommendation, Danielle. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. 
I've been speaking with fiction writer Danielle Evans. Her collection of short stories, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, won the 2011 Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize. Evans gave a reading at the University of Oregon on April 12, 2018, as a guest of the English Department and with the support of the Oregon Humanities Center's Coleman Gateau Professorship. Thanks so much for watching.